There are some sentences that have a significance far beyond their word count. For example, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. The authors of the Declaration of, of Independence here are obviously saying, making a big statement about the dignity of all mankind. Everyone should recognize that all people have equal value, right? Or a less profound, but maybe more um, everyday sentence we might hear spoken or hear having been spoken. A small sentence with big significance, we're gonna have to let you go. There's a lot of meaning packed into that sentence, isn't there? There's a lot of big changes are coming in your life, a different job, a different paycheck, maybe a different place that you're gonna be living. Or, let's do a happier example, will you marry me? These are obviously life-changing words, right? Your yes to this question is setting your life on a whole new trajectory, right? Or if you're in the dating scene, you might hear from your significant other the dreaded, can we talk? And if you hear that, you can go ahead and assume that they have something unfortunate to share with you. You don't always have to say a lot of words to say a lot, right? Some sentences have a significance far beyond their word count. And yes, I do recognize the irony in this as I'm about to say a lot of words this morning. But in our passage today, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we have a short section of scripture here that has a significance much larger than the number of words that are in these verses. Not much is said in these verses in terms of quantity. It's a short two verses. But at the same time, a whole lot is said here. Here we have a few words whose significance will reverberate throughout the Bible and throughout history. So in this short yet significant passage today, which is just two verses, we're gonna, be, we're gonna see a few remarkable things that happen in this garden and learn a few important things about the God who created it. But before we do that, I wanna quickly remind us of where we're at in the book of Genesis. You'll remember that in chapter one, God, Moses is recounting God's creation of everything, right? Creation of heaven, earth, trees, animals, and ultimately mankind on, as the crown of his creation. And remember that on day six in chapter one, we saw this account of God's creation of a man and a woman, who we know as Adam and Eve. This first couple, they receive a commission from the Lord to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And then last week, Pastor Larry did a great job walking us through verses four to 15 of chapter two where we got a glimpse of this idyllic garden that God placed in the east. In this one man, Adam, into whom the Lord breathed the breath of life and who the Lord placed in this garden to work it and to keep it. So we've seen all that, right? But you might have noticed now that we're in chapter two, as we've been breaking into chapter two, it seems like we kind of jump back to the sixth day of creation in chapter one, right? God had already completed his creation and had rested on the seventh day, as we saw in chapter one and a little bit of the beginning of chapter two. But here in chapter two, Moses, through the Holy Spirit here, gives us a more detailed account of the creation of man than he provided in chapter one. So you know how if you're surfing on 
social media and you want to get a closer look at a picture you or somebody else posted, you'll double tap on it, right? And you'll zoom in. At least that's on Facebook. Don't do that on Instagram unless you're wanting to like someone's picture, right? But that's what Moses is doing here, okay? Chapter one was the picture of creation as a whole. And now in chapter two, Moses is sort of double clicking on day six of creation to give the reader a closer look at God's creation of mankind. And interestingly, whereas if all we had was chapter one, it would have seemed that Adam and Eve were created at the same time, right? But after we double tap on the picture in chapter two, we see that Adam was created first and then Eve. And that's what we'll look at next week, the creation of Eve. But I mention all these things to set the scene that we're about to step into in chapter two, verses 16 to 17. Adam here is the lone human being who has been created thus far, okay? It's only Adam in this beautiful garden. It's only Adam so far who lives as a unique creation of God separate from the plants and the animals. It's only Adam who is addressed here in Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. So if you would join me in Genesis two, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is an interesting one to focus on all by itself. At least for me, I usually read these verses and kind of make the mental jump ahead immediately to the fall, right? But we are not yet in Genesis 3, where we'll see that Adam does end up disobeying this command he receives. He hasn't yet disobeyed. Here, he's only been commanded, right? So what's the point of this text in specific? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, rebuke, and correction, right? For correction and training in righteousness. So what is it that God is teaching us today in these short but weighty verses before the fall. Is this, are these verses merely preparatory for the reader to understand what happens in chapter three? And to understand why what happens in chapter three is so dev- devastating? It's certainly not less than that, right? Because without these couple of verses, we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand the gravity of Adam's sin that's to come. But I do think that there's more than that happening here. This passage is not yet about Adam's response to God. This passage is about God's relationship to Adam. So I think there's more happening here than simply preparing the reader for what's to come. I think that in this text, we can observe the heart of God in the garden. I think we can observe three very important things for us to observe and to understand about the God of the universe and his relation to his creation. I believe that there are three things that God does in these two short verses that communicate to us, even today, profound truths about the heart of God, the heart of the God who made Adam, and the heart of the God who made each of us here today. And those three things we'll see as we progress through the text are first, God's condescension in the first half of verse 16. Second, we'll see God's provision 
in the second half of verse 16. And then third, we'll see God's restriction in verse 17, which, by the way, this was not intentional, but that coincidentally acronymizes the CPR, if that's helpful to remember. So let's start start first with verse 16 and God's condescension. In the first half of verse 16, we see God's condescension when the word says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying... I'd be willing to bet that the first time we read that, you didn't think much of it. Neither did I, until I slowed down to think about what's happening here. So, let's slow down here. This is a monumental moment in the creation narrative. I don't want to rush past this. These are the first recorded words of the creator God to his creature, man. Now, you might think, Wait, didn't we already see God speak in chapter 1? And yes, you're right, but glance back with me at chapter 1, verse 28, briefly. Who did God speak to in chapter 1, verse 28? Them, right? Plural, Adam and Eve. But now that we're in this zoomed-in account of God's creation of man and woman in chapter 2, Eve isn't around yet. That's our passage for next week. Here, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God's word is addressed to one man, Adam. This is a one-on-one conversation initiated by the Lord. And just, just, think, just think with me about how stunning this would be if we weren't numbed by our familiarity with this passage. This God, who we should marvel at as the creator of everything that exists, now here, condescends to Adam to speak with him. This God who not only created everything, but created everything by his word, now comes and he addresses Adam with these same words. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. And the God who said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. This God, without whose, without whose word, nothing would exist, now addresses Adam for the first time. These are the first recorded words of the creator God to his creature, man. And this is why I'm calling this God's condescension. And I don't mean condescension as we might use it in a popular sense of when someone's being patronizing or treating someone as unintelligent. What I mean by God's condescension is that even though he is the glorious God who created all things and who the New Testament says dwells in unapproachable light, here approaches man to speak to him. The massive gap that exists between God as creator and man as creation, even before the fall, right? Just a gap in being, creator and creature, is here bridged by God coming and speaking to Adam through his word. I, I cannot stress the magnitude of this moment enough. There's, I, I tried, there's no good illustration that I can think of to, to, uh, for us to feel the significance of this moment, so I'll offer you a bad one. So, imagine with me that you are a Swifty, as I think they call themselves, a Taylor Swift fan, okay? You go to one of her concerts, along with 75,000 other people, and after several hours, of listening to her sing from your seat half a mile from her, you leave, you begin walking to your car, and when you see, 
as you approach your car, someone's standing next to it. Who is it? It's Taylor Swift. She's waiting to talk with you. And remember, you're a Swifty. This is not just any conversation for someone like you. You would be hanging on her every word. You would feel the significance of that conversation. Now, obviously, Taylor Swift is just a creature, nothing more than a creature herself. That's why I say it's a dumb, dumb illustration. But hopefully this gives us even just a microscopic insight into the significance of this conversation that's happening here when God first speaks to man. This is no small matter. And this is a helpful reminder here in these verses that God, by his very nature, is a communicative God. He is a God who speaks. God didn't make this pristine garden for Adam just to place him in it, take a step back, and to leave him be. He desired to be with Adam in the garden, and he desired to speak with Adam. Here we observe in God's first words to man, his, our God's heart to speak with his creation. This is remarkable. And what was the nature of this first word of God to man? What was the nature of this first word? It's the first time he speaks. What does he say? Verse 16 the Lord God commanded the man. Isn't that telling? Doesn't this show us something about the nature of our relationship as creatures to the creator? We don't like to be commanded very often, do we? There's something that can rise up inside us when we are told to do something or not to do something by somebody. But when it comes to our relationship with the creator of the universe, creator of us, there's nothing more fitting than, to, than for us to stand and to kneel under his rule. The Lord here, he doesn't make requests of Adam. He doesn't make observations to Adam. The Lord who created everything by the command of his word now addresses Adam with a command. And it's a command regarding how he should live in the garden, especially regarding where he will find his sustenance. So what, what doesn't God do here in Genesis? The Lord doesn't simply place this forbidden tree in the garden, then place Adam in the garden, and without a word, grab his popcorn and take a step back to see what happens, right? The Lord doesn't say to Adam, hey, there are a ton of good trees here, you're gonna love it. But I should tell you, one of them, you eat it, it's gonna kill you. We'll see what happens, good luck. He doesn't say that either, right? As, as if it's some sort of don't find the needle in the haystack kind of game. There is no ambiguity in this command from God. He says, do this, but don't do that. And this makes me think back a couple months ago. There was some road construction. My wife and I live in North Manchester, and there was some road construction happening on a little stretch of road that I, that I drive often as I'm coming up here. But the road had been closed for several days while they were doing something to it. I didn't know what they were doing. But then one day, it reopened. But with an ominous sign posted at either side of where the construction had been happening. The sign read simply, travel at own risk. That's about as unhelpful as a sign can be, right? 
So is the road actually open or is it not? What am I risking? How much of a risk is it? What, shouldn't, what, what should I be wary of? There seems to be danger, but I don't know if there's anything I can do to minimize it or anything I can do to avoid it other than avoiding the road altogether. But that is clearly, this is not what's happening here in Genesis 2. God does not say to Adam, eat at own risk. He says, you're free to eat of all the trees of the garden except this one, right? There's no doubt about which trees, which trees he is permitted to eat of and which trees he is not permitted to eat of. The creator God's first recorded words here in Genesis are not just a command, but a clear command. There is no ambiguity Adam would have understood. And let's remember that this isn't important only for the purpose of highlighting the willful disobedience of Adam that's to come in chapter 3, right? In these few short words, we get a glimpse of the heart of our God into the nature of our God as one who condescends to speak clearly with his creation. He condescended to communicate to Adam clearly and giving him this first command in Genesis and he condescends to us today and every day in his word, in his scriptures. He's not simply a God who spoke in the past tense, but he's a God who continues to speak through what he has spoken with us. When God says in his law, do not murder, it's not confusing to understand what he means, right? Or when he says in his law, do not commit adultery. We, there's no doubt that he means do not commit adultery, right? This is clear. When God says in his word, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, there is no doubt regarding what the Lord's plan of salvation is, right? Yes, some parts of scripture might be more difficult to understand than others, but we, when we approach God's word, we can trust in the clarity he gives regarding how we can live in Christ and, and live in him. So this creator God is not some distant God who spun the world into motion and then took a step back to leave it to arbitrary fate, but one who continues to condescend to his creation, to us, just as he did to Adam through his word. But even as glorious as this verbal condescension that we hold in our hands this morning is, God condescended to us in an even more significant way in the person of Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, in his taking on of human flesh and coming to earth to live the perfect life that no mere human ever could and to die the death that every sinful human being deserves to die, Jesus Christ, God the Son, condescends not just to communicate, but to redeem. Just as God here in Genesis 2 condescends to Adam for the purposes of loving communion with him in the garden, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came down into time and space 2,000 years ago for the purpose of redemptive communion with the crown of his creation, human beings. So here in Genesis 2, we see God's heart in his condescension to Adam to give him a command. 
So now let's look a little bit more closely at the substance of what that command was. And we'll see this in the, first, in the second half of verse 16 here. So let's read verse 16 again. Look back to the rest of verse 16 with me. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Though there is a negative command to follow, right? God leads here with his abundant provision for Adam. In this garden, which is unimaginably greater than any place we've ever been or could imagine, God provided presumably thousands or at least hundreds, I would think, of trees that existed for the purpose of Adam's enjoyment and sustenance. As verse 9 said a little bit earlier, uh, the trees were pleasant to the sight and good for food. These are good gifts from a good creator to his creation. And remember that among all these trees that the Lord God gives Adam freedom to eat of is the tree of life, as we were introduced to in verse 9 last week. This tree of life is also fair game for Adam to eat from. And it seems like God, through the fruit of this tree of life, was providing a way for Adam and those who would come after him to never taste death. But in Genesis, in Genesis, well, in Genesis 3, after Adam sins, we even see this, when God actually lovingly sends Adam and Eve out of the garden so that he doesn't, as verse 22 says, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever and live in this perpetual state of sin. So here in the garden, we observe the Lord's provision of Adam's every need. He lacks nothing. And it's noteworthy here how emphatic this permission is. God doesn't just tell Adam that he can eat or, he can, or that he can eat if he wants to. He says, as the, as the ESV translates this emphatic statement, you may surely eat of every tree. Or as the NASB translates it, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat eat. And let's not, let's not rush ahead in the verse 17 yet, right? And the one tree that he wasn't to eat from. This, isn't some, this provision isn't some sort of token provision from the Lord to soften the blow of the restriction that's going to follow, right? This is the heart of God for his beloved creature. The Lord abundantly provided everything Adam would ever need for life with him in the garden, but because of Adam's disobedience that we'll see later, he forfeited life with God. He forfeited what God held out to him as for his good. He looked at the provision of God and said, that's not enough for me. And because of Adam's sin, we don't even have a shot on our own at the kind of life that the Lord offered to Adam here in the garden. But God didn't react to this spurning of his provision by Adam by simply saying, well, I guess humans just aren't interested in what I have to offer for them. The Lord knows better than we do that life with him is for our good. And so in the eternal plan and wisdom of God, it was decided that Christ would come to offer us life 
once again. Not based on Adam's obedience here in the garden, not based on our obedience here today, but based on Christ's obedience. The Lord has provided everything that his creatures need for life with him. And so my question as we think about this idea of the provision of God toward his creation. My question is, do you feel like you lack? And I speak to those who are in Christ, those who have been united with Christ by faith here, because if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you should feel that lack. But I speak to those in Christ. Do you feel like you lack? Do you often feel like your life isn't so much a garden of provision as it is a desert of restriction? Have you forgotten the heart of your creator and your redeemer? I, at least, am ashamed at how quickly I can forget God's kindness toward me. Now, yes, the fact that we, that we today live in a sinful world and are ourselves tainted with sin complicates the scene that we observe here in Genesis 2. It's not quite as straightforward. But it's also to people living in a fallen world that our Lord Jesus Christ says to the people in Matthew chapter seven, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Do you trust your heavenly Father's provision? Do you trust your heavenly Father's kind heart toward you in Christ? Any level of unthankfulness in our hearts for what the Lord provides for his creatures is the sin of Adam being repeated in us all over again. When we look at God who, as in Acts 17, 25 says, is not served by human hands as if he has any need, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And if we say to him, your provision is not sufficient we join our voices with Adam's in Genesis 3. If that's you, and I must admit it's too often the posture of my heart, we would do well to take the advice of an old simple hymn that I think even Mike might have referenced in his prayer this morning that instructs us to count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And if there's only one item on that list, and that item is Jesus Christ died for my sins, God's kind-hearted provision should stun you. And I promise that's not the only item on the list if that's on the list. God abundantly provided Adam with everything he needed for life with him in the garden. And he has provided us with everything we need for life with him. Now, lest we misunderstand what this text has for us today as some sort of 
name it and claim it, health and wealth, gospel. We need to continue on to verse 17 here, where we continue to observe the kind-hearted nature of our God. But in verse 17, we get a glimpse of God's heart in the garden, not in his provision, but in his restriction. So join me once again, Genesis chapter two. Let's read both verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want to remind you that in this chapter, we are getting a glimpse into the paradise of Eden. No evil to be found, right? Yet we still find here a no from God. Do we witness here in verse 17 a shift from God's abundant provision in verse 16 to his stingy withholding in verse 17? No, this restriction is not arbitrary, it's not cruel. We must recognize that God's restriction here is just as loving as his provision in verse 16. God's restriction, his command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just as much for Adam's good as his provision of all the other trees to eat of. Adam was free to eat from the tree, from all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life, because they would give life. But he was restricted from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it would bring death. And you might remember from last week, Pastor Larry's excellent explanation of why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. It seems that if Adam was to eat of the tree, if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would be claiming for himself the right and the ability to make moral decisions independent of God. Decisions of right and wrong, good and bad, independent of the Lord. A right that belongs to God alone, right? And I think that is spot on. But I think that there's probably another dimension here too of, of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not only would Adam be attempting to usurp the role of God in his, um, in his decisions on what's right and wrong in his eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you think about it, Adam is never meant to even know what evil is. He himself, thus far, as we've seen in Genesis, he is a very good creation placed in a very good world. Everything we've seen in the creation narrative thus far makes clear that Adam is exposed to only good. All he knows in an experiential sense is good. The goodness of his God and the goodness of the creation. He shouldn't even know what evil is except in a hypothetical sense, and that's from this command only. So at the point in the story that Adam is given this command, all he knows is the goodness of God and the goodness of the creation in which his God placed him. Which might cause us to ask an interesting question. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil itself good? Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this forbidden tree that will bring death, is this also good? 
The answer to this question is a definite yes, right? I had never thought about this question until I was thinking a little bit more deeply about this passage in the last week or so. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is most definitely itself a good creation by God. When God looked over his creation at the end of chapter one and declared it very good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already there. It had already been created by the Lord. Which might lead us to ask another interesting question that we have all wondered, or we've all asked, or we've at least wondered, why would the Lord place such a tree in the garden at all, right? We've all wondered this question. Now, before we answer that question, I do think that we should remind ourselves that our ability to satisfactorily answer that question should not determine our understanding of God's declaration of it, of it being good, right? Whether or not we can answer the question in a way that's satisfactory to us as creatures should in no way change the way that we think about the creator's very good creation, as he calls it. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. If we do that, if we call the good creation of even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil bad, when God has called it good, we are showing exactly why the Lord prohibited Adam from eating of the tree in the first place. We find ourselves making a moral judgment of good and bad independent of God's evaluation of good and bad, right? Do you follow me? We find ourselves judging good and evil, right and wrong, based on our own intuition, our own preferences, separate from the Lord's judgment of good and evil. So even if we had no discernible explanation for why such a dangerous tree could be a part of God's very good creation, we should humbly recognize it as such because that's what the Lord calls it. So I want us to have the right posture as we ask that question. But I do want to offer one possible response to the question, one possible answer to the question of why the Lord placed this tree in the garden. I think that this tree provides an opportunity for Adam's relationship with his God to expand in his obedience, okay? Thus far, Adam has related to the Lord only in enjoying God's good creation and his provision in it. Just living and enjoying, this is his relation to God, living and enjoying what God's provided. But with the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam now has an opportunity to relate to the Lord in loving obedience. He now has the opportunity to trust God in his restriction along with enjoying God in his provision. One commentator uh, named Claus Westerman captures this idea succinctly as he thinks through why this tree is here and why Adam is commanded not to eat of it. He writes, this prohibition in no way means that the man will be deprived of anything. It actually enlarges his potential. For by hearing it and obeying it, the man stands in a new relationship with the one giving the command. By hearing it and obeying it, the man stands in a new relationship with the one giving the command. And this makes me think of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, that says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
and his commandments are not burdensome. God's heart is seen here in his desire to have his creatures live and to live in loving communion with him as they both enjoy him in his provision and trust him in his restriction. To Adam, God holds out life for obedience and death for disobedience. The Lord restricted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it would separate Adam from his God. And this seems to be the primary meaning of the phrase, and you will surely die. You will surely die, is the idea of separation. Certainly, physical death is an outworking of this sin of Adam, right? As chapter five, once we get there, will show with its relentless drumbeat in the genealogy of, and he died, and he died, and he died. Certainly, physical death is an outworking of Adam's sin here. But it seems that Adam's death is more spiritual even than physical here because we observe that when he does take of the tree and eat, that he and his wife are alienated and separated rather than physically killed. It is because God desires to be in loving communion with his creation that he provides that which promotes that loving communion and restricts that which hinders it. And it's both in the living, in the enjoyment of God's provision and in obedience to his restriction that increases the depth of this communion that Adam has with his God. And this is important for us to grasp even today. God's restriction of of that which will harm Adam is just as loving as his provision of everything that will benefit him. This is God's heart in the garden that we observe in these just two short verses in Genesis. In love, the Lord condescends to Adam to speak with him, to be with him. In the garden, the Lord provided Adam with everything he needed for life with him in the garden. And he restricted the one thing that would lead to death and to separation from him. This is the communion that creator and creature should have had in the garden with one another, right? But as we'll see in a few weeks, Adam disobeys this command, doesn't he? And he was driven out of the garden. And in Adam, in our natural state, we too find ourselves alienated from the garden, outside the garden. But the good news is that God's heart in the garden that we've seen in these couple of verses does not change after Genesis 2. God's heart in the garden remains God's heart after the garden. The rest of the Bible All of redemptive history is the story of God's reclaiming a people for himself. This story reached its climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God himself, God the Son, condescended to his creation in the flesh in order to provide for his people life in Christ's life. 
Because of Adam's taking that which was lovingly withheld by God, God lovingly provided that which we most desperately needed, and that's a savior from our sin. God holds out that provision to each of us here today. No matter how long you have spurned this provision or how long you have loved what he's restricted, your sins can be forgiven today, even today, by calling out to Jesus Christ. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know this, that God's heart in the garden toward Adam is God's heart toward you in Christ. God's heart toward Adam in the garden is God's heart toward you in Christ. You have no need, I have no need to doubt the Lord's provision of everything that I need for life and godliness, which he grants through his divine power, right? You have no need to question his kind-heartedness to you in Christ. You have no need to be suspicious of his painful restrictions or his mysterious providence in your life. Will God continue to provide all that I need for life in him? The answer is yes. Is any no that I receive from God actually good? Yes. Can God be trusted in his sometimes painful providence? Yes. As we close, I want us to hear the words of God through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. The Lord writes through Paul, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you have trusted in Christ for forgiveness of your sins and received his gift of eternal life, Recognize that God's heart as we observe toward Adam in the garden is also God's heart toward you in Christ. Both in his provision and in his restriction. The cross of Christ proves God's kind heart toward you. Let's pray. Lord, We come to you as our creator, as the one who made the whole world, as the one who made us. Thank you, Lord, for addressing us with your word. Thank you for providing all that we need for life with you in the person of Christ. Give us faith not only to enjoy you in your provision, but to obey and to trust you in, your, in the things that you lovingly withhold from us. God, we look forward to the day 
that we will no longer have the effects of Adam's sin in us and in our lives, but we'll speak with you and commune with you face to face. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting with us this morning through it. Would our response of praise and thankfulness be pleasing to your ears. God, we thank you and praise you for the redemption that we have in Christ, the one who saved us from our sure death that came as a result of Adam's sin and our sin. We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.